Hey friends, this is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, Chicast episode 82. And I'm on with a newer friend, Mariel Hoffnagel. She is affiliated with an organization called the Amen Foundation. And I actually got connected to the Amen Foundation through a dear friend who is going to be a guest on the podcast. Um, after this one airs, Anawa LaBelle. And so she suggested I reach out to you all. And so, Mario, I'm so glad that you were able to take the time to speak with me. So welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So tell listeners in your own words just a little bit about yourself before we kind of jump into more of who you are. So like you said, my name is Mariel Huffnagel. Um, I'm the executive director of the Ammon Foundation, uh, which is a national nonprofit foundation uh, headquartered in Linden, New Jersey. Um, and really what our mission is, is to uh, remove barriers that stand in the way of people in addiction recovery thriving. Um, and so we do that through two avenues, which I'm sure we'll get more into in the podcast. Sure. Um, offering financial scholarships so that individuals can go back to school, but then coupling that with um, providing life skill training um, so that they can be successful in their day-to-day -day life as well. Um, I'm also a person in long-term recovery, which means I've been alcohol and drug-free since May 2007. Um, I'm a wife, I'm a homeowner, I'm a puppy owner, <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm a taxpayer. <laughs> I'm, you know, uh, I'm a participating and contributing member of society, and uh, the time that I suffered with the substance use disorder uh, doesn't define uh, the way I show up in the world today. That's awesome. I love that. So congratulations on your sobriety. That's a huge deal um, and not something that ought to be taken kind of lightly. Um, so congratulations on that. So I wanted to have you on definitely to talk about the Ammon Foundation, but also to chat about your own story, um, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now um, for the Stories of Sobriety se series um, arc that I'm doing. So what, what happened? What was going on with you? Um, kind of a little bit about your backstory, if you will, with substance use disorder and other things. Sure. Um, so, um, you know, I, I haven't only uh, been able to maintain recovery from substance use disorder, I've also been able to maintain recovery from some mental health issues, as well as um, a pretty severe and crippling eating disorder. And so um, all of that is pretty present from a pretty young age for me. Um, I don't really have any totally lucid sequential order to, you know, to lay out for you, but I know that some of my earliest memories are um, of not feeling like I'm good enough, not feeling like I, uh, like I belong, um, always feeling as if something is missing or out of place, um, and from that young age, looking for ways to kind of fix and control and manage kind of the baseline discomfort that I felt all the time. Sure. 
and from a young age that it was more behavioral than necessarily alcohol and drugs, right? So, um, you know, stealing, tantrums, um, weird behavior around food, you know? Like, I think one of my earliest memories um, is, so I grew up in New York City, and um, one of my earliest memories is, like, sneaking out to, like, the corner deli and getting, and this is, like, not such a big deal, but for me, it's very indicative of kind of the way I lived the rest of my life, right? Yeah. Sneaking out to the deli, buying, like, a buttered bagel, right, which was not allowed in my house, and hiding while eating it and, like, feeling as if I was, like, getting away with something and, like, getting off on that. And I, didn't, I don't know if I really understood that at the time. I'm a big believer that we live forwards and understand backwards. Um, but, um, but, like, so those types of behaviors are present way before I ever pick up alcohol and drugs. These, like, um, this need to kind of look for relief or comfort or control in aspects of my life. I also think it is important to say, though, from a young age and from an older age, that, like, I don't come from a home with seemingly any issues, right? And I think that's important, too, because oftentimes we're, like, trying to look to pinpoint, like, what was wrong in the home or not being loved or all of these, you know, abuse, all of these things that, like, typically should be the trigger or the catalyst for someone developing you know, mental health issues. And that's not my experience. My experience is that I grew up with everything I needed, most of what I wanted, um, including an exceptional amount of attention and love. Um, and so there wasn't anything that like triggered, uh, you know, these feelings of low self-worth, low self-esteem, anxiety, fear. Uh, it was just kind of my natural state from a very young age. Sure. And, um, you know, again, the behavioral stuff got way got out of control um, before alcohol and drugs even even really took a took a play in my life. And, uh, you know, so by the time I was 12 or 13, um, I was already, you know, I'd been arrested several times. I, you know, I was, you know, not doing well in school. I was truant. I had stolen a lot of money from my mother. Um, and uh, and so right around that point. Um, is kind of when I get into alcohol and drugs. Um, and again, I don't really have a very um, exciting or magical story, right? Like some people have this very lucid memory of, you know, their first drink or the first time they got high or kind of had this realization in the beginning that like this is what they were going to chase forever or have some crazy story. And that that's not really my experience. Um, what I do remember is... Um, you know, from the very beginning, um, you know, I started alone, you know, so I also think that that's important. Oftentimes we capitalize and we talk uh, about like peer pressure and, and drinking or getting high because wanting to look cool or hanging out with friends. And, um, and, and that was not my experience. My experience was, um, you know, 11 or 12 years old alone at my mom's liquor cabinet figuring out like how much I could get away with taking, um, which to me speaks loudly about why I started using alcohol and drugs, right? Like it wasn't to be cool. It wasn't to fit in. It wasn't to party. 
um, for me, that very clearly tells me that I was looking for the effect produced by it, right? Similarly to the effect I was looking for, you know, from going and buying this bagel and sneaking and eating it, right? What I understand today is that internally there was um, pain and confusion and anxiety and fear that I was constantly looking for some way to alleviate. Um, so that's kind of my young, you know, my young years. Um, and, uh, you know, the next couple years involve a lot of moving around. Um, my mom moved us out of New York City where I grew up uh, to a suburb uh, outside of the city, thinking that, you know, perhaps if she got her little girl out of this crazy big city, that things would get better. Um, absolutely well-intended. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Um, and, uh, and then the next couple of years, we don't, excuse me, we don't physically move at all, but I move from schools to schools mm -hmm. to all different sorts of type, you know, behavioral, uh, you know, initiatives to try to modify and, you know, and, and treat whatever it is that's going on with me from wilderness to outpatient rehab to being homeschooled to going to a boarding school. Um, so that's kind of like the next five years. Um, all of during my alcohol and drug use is pretty at bay. Um, not necessarily because I wanted it to be, just because there were all of these external circumstances in my life. Um, and so again, at, at that point, you know, I would say from 12 to 17, um, really I was very active in an eating disorder, um, mm -hmm. but not particularly, you know, high throttle into alcohol or drugs because I didn't have access to them. Um, however, from 17 to 21, um, which is when I get sober, which I think is important to say too, because, uh, and we're talking about it more and more now, the idea of like entering recovery at a young age, um, and that you don't have to be any age or any color or any anything, right, to access recovery. Uh, but I, I still think the picture of drug addiction and the picture of alcoholism oftentimes is portrayed as like middle-aged, lower socioeconomic, um, you know, dark-skinned. Um, and, uh, and because of that image, I think too often people don't associate themselves with having a problem because they don't fit that very stereotypical mold of what an addict or an alcoholic looks like. Sure. Me, that mold was middle-aged white guy, trench coat, maybe having clothes on, maybe not, right? Um, homeless under a bridge. That's right. And that certainly wasn't me. So um, it never even crossed my mind that I could suffer from alcoholism or addiction because I didn't fit the picture of what I believed in my head it was. So, um, so I just love to touch on the fact that like I got sober at 21. I've been able to maintain my recovery since then um, and have this incredible life, right? Um, like I didn't have to be 55 to get well, right? Like recovery was available for me at 21. Um, and before that, I just didn't know. Sure. Um, but so yeah, so 17 to 21, things get pretty bad pretty fast. And I also think that that's important. I know that I had like an idea in my head of, um, you know, uh, needing to suffer for years prior to being able to like hit whatever, you know, this rock bottom that we talk about. Um, and, uh, and my experience was that 
it only took a matter of months for my life to really spiral out of control. Um, and, uh, and that looked like going from, you know, drinking occasionally to drinking and getting high regularly, you know, with alcohol and, and pot to then moving to cocaine to then moving to crack cocaine and heroin. And once I, you know, did that move to crack cocaine and heroin, uh, when I say it was a matter of just a couple of weeks that my life did a 180, um, that's not an over-dramatization. It took just a couple of weeks um, for the physiology in my brain, the physiology in my body to switch and for alcohol and drugs to become my number one priority and for me to lose or in some cases throw away everything else that I had going on. Um, and so from 18 to 21, um, basically what my life looks like is it looks like homeless, living on the streets of Norwalk, Connecticut, um, prostituting myself, getting arrested regularly, being abused, being in scary situations, um, you know, and more importantly than kind of all of those things that were external, it looked like three years of not being able to look myself in the mirror. It looked like three years of, you know, waking up and going to bed with shame, remorse, fear, guilt, and anxiety, um, and, uh, and really living, you know, a shell of, a, of an existence but beyond that, just like a very sad, depressing, dark existence. Um, and, uh, and so my recovery date is May 7th, 2007, um, which also is the same date that I got arrested. Um, and, uh, and I also think that that's important because what I've learned is that um, sometimes the universe has better plans than I do, right? And um, on May 7th, 2007, I had no um, desire to enter into and certainly no desire to maintain any type of recovery program. Um, however, being removed from the circumstances that I was in for a period long enough allowed me to gain some clarity to realistically see where my life had gone and where it was going, which was nowhere fast, um, which then gave me enough motivation to, and enough willingness to be able to make some changes um, in my behaviors my act, and my actions. Um, and so even though it didn't look at the time like this beautiful, wonderful thing, right? It looked like being pretty brutally escorted off a freight train, you know, by a police officer, um, you know, into a holding cell. Um, it really clearly today was the universe, you know, in guise of police department, you know, removing me and giving me a new chance. Sure. That's awesome. So you've now covered what happened. So what is it like now and how were the first days, maybe months of your recovery. Um, this podcast um, appreciates multiple pathways to recovery. So there's not one set way for any one person. Um, and I'm really glad that you touched on the fact that at any time, someone can stop and start a new way of living. Um, you don't have to wait. Um, until you are even legally able to drink 
an alcoholic beverage, right? You can, there are plenty of people who have um, come to a new way of living um, under 21 and many more people in their 20s, even though a lot of people have waited until 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. So, so what is it like now and how is the beginning of kind of your recovery, your path to recovery? Um, so um, a nice hotel yeah I've had, I've had better um, but I've also had worse so, sure um, so I mean I think that I think that early you know early in recovery was hard right um, and for me I had to have just I didn't have to not want to get high or drunk anymore because that wasn't true Right. I just needed to have a little bit of a desire to see if maybe I could maintain my recovery. Right. And uh, like a little bit of willingness to to try some different things. Sure. And I think that's important, too, because I also think, you know, um, and I, I, I like, you know, I work in this space. So I, I often like to think of like the macro effect. Right. And mm -hmm. that so often the conversation is like, oh, you know, if somebody doesn't want it, they're not going to be able to maintain their recovery, right? And I don't really subscribe to that belief. Um, I mean, I do subscribe to obviously that somebody has to be willing to take some new actions and change some of their behaviors. But I mean, I think I wanted to be high for like the whole first year I was in recovery, right? Um, it's just in spite of that, I was willing to give recovery a chance, right? And so I, I just, I, I think that we need to be careful societally about like dismissing somebody as being able to maintain their recovery because perhaps they don't want it, right? Or they're not doing exactly the things that I think somebody needs to be doing in order to maintain their recovery. Um, but so yeah, the, the first year was, was hard. Um, and I think some of the most important things that I was able to do that first year was find peers, right? Find people who were my age or thereabouts, you know, like, so I was, I was newly 21 when I got sober. So finding people from 17 to 30 that were like having fun and living life because I had this like illusion, this old idea that like, the party was going to be over when I stopped getting high. Mm -hmm. um, and the truth, of course, is that like the party had long been over because like I was like in the fetal position in like some dirty motel getting high. Like that's what my life looked like. So there was no party. Right. Um, but I still had this like, you know, and we're like America, especially we're so um, into like glorifying this party scene and, um, and also just, normally and naturally when you're in your 20s people are getting high and drinking most without alcohol and drug problems sure um and so i really had this like doom and gloom outlook on what recovery could possibly be right um i thought that like you know people in recovery were lame and like they just like knit and fold and like that was gonna be my life and i was like that is not a life i want to live Right. And so falling into a group of peers that were, you know, in recovery and enjoying life 
was super important to me. And um, I don't know if I would have been able to maintain my recovery had that not happened because um, it gave me hope not about just being able to be abstinent, but it gave me hope that like abstinence could be fun and awesome and exciting. Uh, and today, I'm absolutely of the belief that if your recovery, not like every second, right, but if your recovery can't be better than what your life looked like while you were using, what's the point of being in recovery, right? So, um, so I'm really grateful that I was able to kind of fall into this group of peers um, early on to get a taste of, through watching them, that life could be awesome. Um, because that allowed me to believe that possibly my life could be awesome too without alcohol and drugs. Um, and, um, but I also struggled in a lot of other ways when I got sober. Um, you know, I, I had a felony record, you know, I had trouble getting housing, you know, I, I didn't know how to like manage my money because all of my money previously had gone to alcohol and drugs. So like, my checking account was overdrafted for a significant period of time, which was really stressful. You know, I was working mediocre jobs because I didn't really know how to write a resume or how to interview or how to explain, you know, my kind of shoddy past. Um, you know, why was there this gap, right? Um, you know, I, I, there was just a lot I didn't know. Um, and which is why what I'm so passionate about what I do today, because I oftentimes think, you know, I think we talk about them as like soft skills, right? Like, sure. I, I just didn't have them, whether it was because I never learned them because I'd engaged in use so young, or if it was that I'd simply lost them because I'd been, you know, so wrapped up in my use, uh, I just didn't have them. And so not having these skills really hindered my ability to, thrive and to flourish in the beginning, which luckily wasn't a catalyst for me to re-engage in use, but could have been. Because sure. for five years, although I did experience hope and purpose and joy and meaning, um, that was oftentimes overshadowed by anxiety and fear and overwhelmedness and, you know, and, and still some shame and some low self-esteem because like my life was still pretty small the first couple of years. Um, and I, you know, I even attempted to go back to school when I was a couple of years sober and I, I ended up failing because I didn't have these soft skills. I didn't know how to study. I didn't know how to manage my time. Um, you know, I didn't know how to do these things. And so what that did is it just reinforced kind of that negative taint that I had for so many years. You're not good enough. You're never going to amount to anything. You're not smart enough all of these things. So again, like, and I, I, I would never surmise that I understand like the divine greater plan. Right. Um, I personally subscribe to the belief that like I struggled the first couple of years I was in recovery so that I could do the purposeful work that I do today. Sure. Barriers. Um, however, I don't know. Um, what I do know is that for whatever reason, none of these things were enough to push me over the edge to re-engage in use, um, but they certainly could have been. Um, and, uh, and so luckily I ended up falling kind of into the lap of a, 
a mentor when I was a couple years in recovery um, that really uh, opened my eyes and opened my world up to beyond kind of like a daily program of recovery that was about alcohol and drugs, right? And this woman helped me to kind of figure out what other areas of my life did I need to invest in and work on through therapy, through, you know, all of these kind of different things. Um, you know, and I, I think now about like SAMHSA's eight dimensions of wellness, and we have to look at spiritual, we have to look at financial, we have to look at mental, we have to look at emotional, we have to look at kind of this whole wheel to have a full you know, puzzle. Sure. Um, and so I got to do that when I was about three or four years in recovery. Um, it totally changed my life um, because it opened up this whole world to me that was about more than just abstinence. It was about how can I thrive? How can I be empowered? Like, what are my dreams and goals and vision? What's my purpose? Um, you know, how can I be successful? How can I give back? It opened up this whole new world to me, which took my life from kind of, you know, and by no means a bad one, right? Like, you know, I had a job, I had a roof, I never went hungry, I had good friends, you know, um, like by no means a bad life, but a rather small life, mm -hmm. right? Opening up all of these doors, all of these opportunities, and all of these like dreams, you know, that weren't pipe dreams anymore. Like the ability to have things that were tangible goals that I would be able to reach, um, which has totally changed the trajectory of my life, right? you know, things like going back to school, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know. What did you study when you went back to school? Sure. So I started at, at County College, which I love to say because I think, you know, obviously there's, we're talking about addiction, but I also think there's such a stigma surrounding County College. And I know I had that, right? From go, you know, graduating uh, from, you know, an upper middle class high school, you know, um, like, Flunkies and losers went to county college. Right? Sure. <laughs> um, and uh, I really believe that, you know, county college is like the new wave of the future um, because uh, it was financially sustainable for me. Um, and, uh, and it was like a good way to ease into what continuing my education would look like um, and what that experience not just academically, but also emotionally um, would be. So uh, I went to County College. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I did a general liberal arts degree at County College that I then, um, about my second year, decided would be focused on public service. And then from there I went and I got my four-year degree and now I'm actually finishing up my master's in May, knock on wood, um, both in public administration. Awesome. Yeah. So it, you're going to have a couple of anniversaries or milestones in May, which is such a beautiful thing. So how did you get connected with the Ammon Foundation? Sure. So it's actually like quite a story of kismet, right? Um, so, uh, so I've been working for the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence um, for about four years, um, uh, doing a lot of advocacy with them public policy, legislation, uh, you know, grassroots organizing, community events and awareness, really 
geared towards shifting the way that addiction is treated, viewed, um, both on the local level, but also on the state and the federal level. Um, and our, and going to school while doing that. So um, the CEO of NCADB, Wayne Werda, uh, ran into guys at a conference that had like just started a foundation uh, and they were giving, uh, and they wanted to give scholarships away in recovery. Um, and I'm like, well, I'm in recovery. I'm in going to school. I should apply for a scholarship. Um, and so I did that. And apparently the foundation wasn't really up and running yet. Like I sent my application to an email address that like the email got kicked back to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but so I, um, so I printed it out and I mailed it and I got a call a couple of weeks later um, saying like, congratulations, we'd like to offer you this scholarship. And then we'd also like to talk to you about a potential job opportunity. Um, and so really having no idea what I was walking into, um, you know, I met with, uh, with who are now two of our trustee board of directors, um, who really kind of told me that their vision was helping people in recovery, but they didn't have much more than that. Um, and so it has been this really incredible opportunity of, um, one professionally for me, uh, but secondly, being able to really create from the bottom up this foundation that I believe wholeheartedly really fills a need and bridges a gap between, you know, acute addiction treatment and supporting individuals in recovery so that they can maintain and sustain their recovery and thrive while doing so. That's so cool. Um, so many people may have gotten discouraged when they got a bounce back email, right? And so I think one of the things in terms of recovery, and I'm speaking broadly, um, like looking at not just substance use disorder um, or an eating disorder or mental health, is that um, it is easy to get sidetracked or go backwards to what is familiar. And the fact that you had the wherewithal, the support to not go back to, um, there was a community where I used to be um, and I'm no longer, just because it's not a healthy space, even though there was nothing personally done to me. But one of the things that I think about when I think about that is, going back to your vomit, like how a dog will go back to, you know, or there, you know what, <laughs> like, it's easy to go back to what is familiar. And creating new pathways, like neural pathways in the mind, you know, and having that connection, mind, body, spirit, that's different, and uncomfortable. Um, but doing it anyway, right? Working against yourself and doing the difficult thing or having fear and walking through it anyway, experiencing it and keep continuing to go in one path instead of returning to an old path is such a testament. Um, and I'm glad that you were able to come on and share so much of your story because it's not so much the details, even though people sometimes like to get the nitty gritty details. It's more of the overarching of the experience 
you know, and just that someone can go from A to Z and it's the same person and someone that may have been watching overhead and it's like, oh yeah, they're not going to make it. You just never know, you know, and that additional support is incredibly important. Something I was thinking about. So this is how I sometimes get guests to come back on. It's like I ask them when they're being recorded and usually everyone says <laughs> yes. But having you and some other folks that I've talked to um, that are in the recovery space, it might be cool to have a panel um, because we do need to continue having this conversation. I'm so glad that the um, Surgeon General several years ago finally kind of admitted this notion of if we treat substance use disorder as a disease, not dissimilar from cancer or diabetes, you know, and have treatment plans that set people up for success, what would happen if we did that? You know, I don't think it could hurt. Um, and people get stuck on words and notions instead of looking at the larger picture of like, well, what if we just did this? You know, what if we just looked at it a different way? And so I'm really grateful that you made the time to, um, you know, spend time here with us and listener with me and the listeners um, to kind of share a little bit, a snapshot of your story um, and how you got to where you are, because it does provide some hope to people. Um, so is there anything else that is kind of like a burning desire that you want to share with listeners about you, your story, the Ammon Foundation, or um, recovery in general? Uh, no, thank you so much for having me. Um, oh, yeah. I really appreciate it. Um, and I, uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of the series. Awesome. Yeah, there's some really great people. I just, it's so funny because you, when you mentioned Kismet, I was like, so it's called the type A hippie, right? And I am very type A. And so I record podcasts, even with a full-time job, even with other, you know, I teach yoga and, you know, I'm into a couple of um, businesses outside of this. And it's like, I like to make sure that I have, you know, guests lined up. And so this one was kind of likely because of the nature of it. I did an arc on, um, stories of survivors, you know, survivor stories. And so that I got filled up right away. Um, but stories of sobriety, because of stigma, right? We've talked about that a little bit. And um, just misguided notions. People try to attempt to be helpful, and they really are not sometimes. <laughs> right? And so, um, you know, it was, I had holes. Um, and so it's just been such an act of the divine to like draw me, draw the right people to this podcast. And so I totally, totally appreciate it. Um, so glad you were here. So I forgot friends, I have to pull up a humans of New York story because that is part of our lineup. Um, and then we are going to close the way we normally do. Let's see. Okay, I'm gonna do this. Okay. 
And this is from a series called Invisible Wounds. So, and this was back in August, um, 2016. Let's see. Okay, so this is a little bit longer, but that's okay. And it's, it appears to be a man based in New York City or he was interviewed in New York City, and it says, I was an art student. I loved the human body. I always thought it was so beautiful. My father was a platoon sergeant in the Pennsylvania National Guard, but nobody ever thought, ever thought I'd join the military. I was too sensitive. I was into painting and illustration and theater. Plus, I was a total goofball. I barely finished high school. I didn't have any direction. I got fired from TCBY for giving out too much ice cream. You're supposed to scoop a certain amount every time, and I was just scooping all I could, so nobody thought I'd join the military. But one day, I walked into our living room, and there was a kid sitting on our couch. My father was giving him advice about joining the military. The kid was a grade below me, and I barely knew him, but my father's hand was on his shoulder. And suddenly, I felt this territorial feeling, like he had a connection with my dad that should have been mine, and I wanted that too, so I decided to enlist. I was assigned to my father's platoon. He worried that people would think I was getting preferential treatment, so he put on a serious show. I got volunteered and voluntold to do everything. He'd make me clean the shitters and the slop sinks, and then at night we'd ride home together. I saw a new side of him. Um, I'd always known him as my father, but now I've seen him in a leadership position where he was respected by a large group of people. While we were training, he always told us to be ready for war, but we thought, whatever. The running joke was that the Cub Scouts could get deployed before the National Guard. But in 04, we got our deployment notice for Iraq. They told my father that he couldn't come with us because he had turned 60. It really killed him. He begged the colonel and then the general, but everyone said no. He followed us right to the door of the plane, and he was crying his eyes out, and he kept saluting us as the plane pulled away. He stood there until the ground crew made him leave. We were based out of the Baghdad airport. I drove armored Humvees. Mainly, we transported detainees between the airport and the green zone. The road was known as Route Irish. We called it the eight-minute heart attack. A lot of times, there was sniper fire, and almost every day, an IED would explode. We'd drive through traffic as fast as we could. Sometimes, it was like partying the Red Sea. We'd clear our way through traffic by pointing our rifles at drivers and waving them off the road. You could understand why they resented us. I'm going to skip through. There was a man, an old man who fished in the same spot every single day. He'd stand on the edge of a canal coming off the Tigris. He told him, we told him it was a bad idea. He sat on a village council and he always voted with the coalition. So we told him it was a bad idea to fish in the same place every day. But he was 70 years old, so he couldn't listen to anyone. He wouldn't listen to anyone. And one day, this 15-year-old kid rides by on a scooter and drops a bomb behind him. And I got called out to investigate the crime scene. My job is to take pictures, ask questions, things like that. And I got there right as the sun is going down. And a truck is lighting up the scene with the headlights. And the air smells like an old duffel bag. And I kneel down next to the crater. And I start to take out, take out my bag. And I just freeze. So... Um, 
the hole is filled with dusty coagulated blood and parts of this guy are floating in the canal and it looks like somebody has thrown Smucker's jelly all over the wall and I just froze up. I couldn't do it. I wasn't supposed to be seeing this. I was an art student. I love the human body. I always thought it was beautiful and not in a horny or freaky or weird way. It's the most embarrassing thing a man, a grown man can experience. It's like having a nightmare while awake. And it happened not long after I'd moved to New York City. I had to get help. I lost a whole line of mentors to suicide and I didn't want it to be me too. Maybe some guys can come home from war and go back to mowing their lawn or fixing their gutters. But that just wasn't me. So it just shows that there are invisible wounds that sometimes we don't see and we don't know what's going on with people. And so having a little bit of compassion and understanding can be incredibly helpful. All right. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I'm in that place in me, there is only one of us. So thanks, friends, for joining. Um, if you feel compelled to contribute to this podcast, I'm on Patreon, Patreon forward slash, patreon.com forward slash the type A hippie. My name is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie. Have a gratitude-filled rest of your day. Namaste.